Israel declares war on Hamas after its devastating terror attacks against Israelis. An Israeli researcher tells us what she has learned about the role of Iran and the leader of its Lebanese proxy Hezbollah in the assault. My conclusion is that Nasrallah knows the plan because he engineered it with all the Iranians. Plus, a reporter for The Guardian describes what she knows about the case of an Iranian teenager who apparently fell into a coma after she was confronted by morality police. And the head of a U.S. rights group tells us why Iran's secrecy about the girl's condition is backfiring. The Iranian government, willingly or unwillingly, is fomenting a lot of rumors inside the country that she could be the next Mahsa Amini case. From the Voice of America, this is Flashpoint Iran. Good morning. I'm Michael Lippin in Washington. Israel's war to defeat Hamas entered a fifth day on Wednesday after the Iranian-armed and funded Palestinian group launched surprise terror attacks from Gaza on Saturday, killing more than 1,000 Israelis and at least 14 Americans. Palestinians have reported hundreds of deaths in Israeli counterstrikes on Hamas targets in Gaza, while Israel says its forces have also killed hundreds of Hamas infiltrators who rampaged through Israeli communities near the Palestinian territory. In a televised address on Tuesday, U.S. President Joe Biden denounced what he called the sheer evil of Hamas and pledged to stand united with Israel as it fights back against the U.S.-designated terror group. Without naming Iran, Biden also had this warning for its other proxy forces who are dedicated to destroying Israel. Let me say again, any country, any organization, anyone thinking of taking advantage of this situation, I have one word, don't, don't. Our hearts may be broken, but our resolve is clear. In a Tuesday interview with VOA's Ukrainian service, the U.S. National Security Council coordinator for strategic communications, John Kirby, told my colleague Yulia Yarmolenka that Washington believes Iran shares some responsibility for the Hamas attacks. Make no mistake, Iran uh, has a degree of complicity here. They've been supporting Hamas for many years, training tools, weapons, capabilities. Uh, so nobody's walking away from the fact that Hamas wouldn't be able to function if it wasn't for the support that they get, they get from Iran. What we have said and our Israeli counterparts have said as well is we just haven't seen any direct evidence that they were involved specifically in these attacks. But we're going to keep looking at this. We'll keep monitoring the intelligence picture and the evidence and we'll see where it takes us. Iran's Islamist rulers praised the terror attacks on Israel, whose destruction they have long called for but they denied a role in the planning. Some Israeli researchers nevertheless see a strong Iranian role in its coordination with proxy forces in the months before the attacks. One of them is Sarit Zahavi, an Israeli reserve lieutenant colonel and the founder and president of ALMA, an independent research and education center specializing in Israel's security challenges on its northern border. I spoke to Zahavi by phone Tuesday and asked what she learned from a video that Iran published in April showing its IRGC forces working in a joint operation room with its Palestinian and other proxies. This is the propaganda. Now, you may have said it's just propaganda. But in light of what happened 
last Saturday, you understand that behind the propaganda, there was a true plan that was executed last Saturday. Because this is not a terrorist attack, this is war. And this is in the South, it's Hamas, everybody knows what happened. In the North, with Hezbollah, the reason I had to postpone our conversation within a few minutes is because I was dealing with rocket launching against my, my neighborhood. And there was an infiltration of terrorists yesterday. And there were a few incidents of anti-tank missiles. So it's not all out in the Lebanese-Israeli border. It's not like in the South. But every day there is a terrorist attack, one on war, it is carried out from South Lebanon. Some Hezbollah claims responsibility, and for some uh, Palestinian, like Palestinian Jihad, Islamic Jihad is claiming responsibility. It doesn't matter. Hezbollah controls the area. Now, how do I know there is a connection? Maybe there isn't, because many Israelis are saying today, but Hezbollah didn't attack the way Hamas attacked. What is he waiting for? So I don't know what is he waiting for. At first, I thought that he has the dilemma whether to join in or not. And then I decided that I want to take a look on the meetings. The meetings between Nasrallah, the leader of Hezbollah, between Iran, it was the foreign affairs minister and his staff, and between Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas. But I found out that there were one, two, three, four, five meetings within two weeks between August 12th and September 2nd. And when you put this meeting one after the other, and you see who met who, you understand it was actually a process of confirmation of plans, of operational plans. This is a process that every person who sits in a big company or a person who sits in the army knows what I mean. So I want to ask you, the Iranian government itself is denying that it ordered or directed this attack. Why do you think Iran would be making these denials after having those very public meetings that you just talked about with the Palestinian militant groups in Lebanon? Because the, the U.S. carrier on its way to the Middle East, why wouldn't they play both sides? I don't understand. People just believe everything the Iranians are saying. So they deny. So what? The evidence proved differently. Why there were so many meetings? And I'm saying, if you look at the level of the meeting, it starts from a committee of foreign affairs and security. And then Asala meets with PIJ. And then the assistance of the foreign affairs minister comes and meets Nasrallah. And then Asala meets with the foreign minister. And the next day, he meets again with the Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Nasrallah is the key player in all these meetings, the leader of Hezbollah. He knows what's the plan. He was the one, the go-to person between the boss, Iran, and the operational level, PIJ and Hamas. So, Salit, what do you think Nasrallah is going to do next? I don't know. All I know is that my conclusion is that Nasrallah knows the plan because he engineered it with all the Iranians. And he was the one 
in all these meetings to make the connections because they don't speak on the phone, okay? It's meetings, you meet with the Iranian boss, they give you the directions, the goals of the operation, what they want you to do. And then he goes to Hamas and Palestinian Islamic Jihad and he explains them what should happen. And then the Iranians foreign minister went to Saudi Arabia and he understood that it's going to be normalization process. And he understand that the process of planning need to be accelerated. So immediately he sent his assistants to Nasrallah again. And then Nasrallah meets with the boss, with the Iranian foreign affairs, to present him the plan to get his confirmation. And he got his confirmation, and then it goes to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad head and to Hamas, and he tells them, okay, you got the confirmation, you can go for it. This was September 2nd. And a month later, you see the, the result. I don't know what Nasrallah is planning, but he knows what he's planning. That's for sure. All I can tell you that now on the northern border of Israel, we have everyday terrorist attacks that makes the army occupied. Now, the Israeli army, the IDF, is completely prepared to two fronts war, if you like. The, the IDF had recruited... 360,000 reservists. This is a number that no one remembers here. And the scale is only since the Yom Kippur War in 73. The whole country is drafted. So, Salit, what do you think Israel would do if Hezbollah were to significantly increase its rate of attacks on northern Israel with uh, you know widespread rocket fire similar to what Hamas is doing in the South? I don't know what Israel would do. I can tell you what I hope Israel would do. And I hope Israel will operate to eliminate the military capabilities of Hezbollah and to eliminate, as it is doing, the military capabilities of Hamas. Because what happened now proves us that we can no longer accept a situation that there are these kind of capabilities, either the rockets or the combatants, terrorists, on our borders. We can no longer accept that. We need to make sure that they don't have the capabilities to kill Israelis and massacre Israelis and destroy communities completely the way they did. And I think Hezbollah has this capability as well. Uh, but the problem is Hezbollah's rockets arsenal and drones and missiles and advanced weapons is 10 times more than Hamas. We cannot wait until this arsenal will create here a catastrophe the same way it was created in Israel. So I hope that Israel will eliminate the threat. Well, Sarit, we will keep an eye on that. Uh, Sarit Zahavi, founder and president of the Alma Research and Education Center, speaking to us from northern Israel. Nice of you to come back on to Flashpoint Iran, and uh, we hope that you will stay safe. Thank you very much. You're listening to VOA's Flashpoint Iran. I'm Michael Lippin. Mystery surrounds the fate of a 16-year-old Iranian girl whom rights activists say is in a coma 
after being confronted by morality police on the Tehran metro on October 1st for not wearing a compulsory hijab. Iranian officials asserted that Armita Garavand collapsed from a loss of blood pressure. They released footage from a video camera that was filming the platform, showing the teenager without a hijab as she got onto the train and seconds later being dragged back onto the platform in a disabled state. Activists disputed that account and accused authorities of a cover-up. The case quickly drew parallels with Masa Amini, a 22-year-old Iranian Kurdish woman who died while in police custody in September last year after being arrested in Tehran for wearing a hijab too loosely. Deepa Perron, a reporter for The Guardian, wrote an article this month citing witnesses as saying they saw Garavand collapse inside the train after a female hijab enforcer violently confronted her. VOA cannot independently verify that reporting as it is barred from Iran. Perron sent VOA several voice messages on Tuesday describing what she has learned from the people she identified as witnesses. The two witnesses actually have absolutely no idea what happened before Armita came inside the train. Uh, they don't know her. And a lot of people have been asking me if these witnesses are somehow related to her. Uh, not that I know of. These are strangers who take the same train every day and they don't know her personally. So other reports are saying that there must have been a confrontation in the station and the platform before she entered the train. And I have absolutely no idea about this. I wasn't able to independently verify what happened before she entered the train. All we know is based on the videos submitted by uh, the Islamic Republic's state media, which the, the evidence lab at Amnesty International has said is edited. And um, we don't know what really happened because these videos have been very clearly edited. Now, that's the only evidence that we have from the outside. Based on what the witnesses have said, the concentration was very violent and it happened very quickly, but not as quickly as the regime claims uh, in the video that happened in two seconds. It was longer than that. And they were so shocked that they just didn't know what was happening. and. Also, another thing in the video is that everybody claims nobody walked out of the train, but a lot of people concerned with what was happening to this young girl who were not supposed to get down actually did get down at the station. And that's what the witnesses said, that they got down at the station. There were a lot of people surrounding her and checking on what's happening. And some of them actually waited until the ambulances came. So that's how... Um, one of the witnesses is very strongly convinced that the woman who hit her was near the ambulance. Another one said that she also believes that this woman was at the ambulance. However, she also said that with so much happening, we could clearly see that she was a young girl and the attention of the crowd was more towards Ormita and uh, not really at the woman. Paran also shared an update from her contacts with an Iranian rights group that has been raising the alarm about Garavan's situation. I've actually spoken to the team at Hengo, which first posted the video of Ormita on the bed in coma, the hospital bed. I, I checked with the spokesperson and, and they said they have no update because she's been moved to an undisclosed ward inside the Fajr hospital 
and families um, have not been able to meet her, but they've reportedly been only able to see her through a glass window. So that's the latest we have. I have no update on her health, and I'm afraid that eight days have passed already, and I'm afraid that we may not get an update from the regime as yet. We're all waiting, like anybody else, to see what's happening. And all uh, my efforts to get in touch with her friends and family, especially the friends who were present with her, have failed. Nobody is willing to talk to the media. Um, I'm also in touch with local reporters who are independently trying to investigate what's happening. I'm in touch with them as well, and none of us have a clue as to what's unfolding, really. Because there's a lot of security around the hospital. We've seen evidence of that. We've seen videos posted by citizen journalists where they show that there's a lot of security outside the hospital. It's a well-secured, guarded hospital, as we know, and they're keeping the situation very, very secretive. In another message, Paron said it is difficult to understand what happened to the teenager without access to the full video of the incident. Even the reporters on the ground don't have access to it. They're being completely blocked from information. And unless there is an international investigative team that arrives in Tehran and investigates it, we will not know the truth. There's really clear imbalance because we don't have any evidence that the government has access to. Unless we have an access to that, we won't be able to conclude bit by bit what really happened. And I I can only hope uh, our meter comes back to full health and actually tells us what we've seen in the past as well, that they've coerced people to claim what they've claimed and they threaten families of victims. And it's well documented uh, how much pressure they put on families. Especially in the past year, we know what has happened with Mahasa's family and uh, with Kian's family. We just know what's happened recently with uh, Mehdi Karami's dad. We don't know how he's doing and there's not been an update. So this pattern has continued and unfortunately, the innocent people are paying a price for it. Another group following the case is the U.S.-based Center for Human Rights in Iran. I spoke to its executive director, Hadi Gaimi, on Monday and asked what sources he has been using to monitor developments. We've tried to find people informed as close to their family as possible, and uh, we have found some journalists and people in Tehran who have made claims about her situation and how it happened, Uh, but we have no way of verifying it. There are conflicting reports. There are reports that there was an altercation at some point during her journey that morning, and um, it remains a mystery. Did it happen inside the metro car that she entered? But that would have been extremely fast, given she was pulled out quickly. We don't know on her journey, as she did not have a job, if anything had happened before. But the government's own behavior, I think, speaks volumes right now, the way that they are. If this was a regular injury of a citizen in the subway, there was no need to keep the details so difficult from the public eye. So I would say the Iranian government, willingly or unwillingly, is uh, fomenting a lot of rumors inside the country that she could be the next Massa Amini case. But I would say we should be very careful uh, given the lack of information. 
Well, as we all know, uh, very soon after Masa Amini died last year, nationwide protests began erupting as the news spread domestically of what happened to her. But we haven't so far seen a, a similar kind of thing happen this time. Why do you think that is? Uh, well, the situation is very different. Basically, much of the big cities, including Tehran, are under security lockdown in terms of people being able to come out. There is really no room for protest. But I think as we approach November, early November, which is the anniversary of 2019 massacre, as well as major killings last year during the protests at that time, I think the situation is very volatile, but people in the country right now are extremely careful not to put themselves in line of uh, danger that the government poses to them. So public protests remain uh, unknown right now, and I would say only spontaneous and really outraged citizens may come out at any point. But very hard to say right now because people seem to be evaluating. There is no question they want to protest, they want to come back, but they're evaluating the costs and benefits right now. How encouraged do you think are people in Iran who want to go out and protest, who want to continue the woman life freedom movement after they heard the news that uh, Nargis Mohammadi was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize a few days ago? Uh, well, I think it was a very welcome news that the international public opinion and credible institutions such as the Nobel Foundation have decided to acknowledge Nargis Mohammadi as the symbol of the woman life freedom movement. It's very important that this is a award that Nargis herself has emphasized is for all Iranian women and people struggling in the country. But at the same time, there was no one better than Nargis to receive it. So I think it gives a lot of heartfelt appreciation inside the country and a certain level of confidence that their movement is recognized internationally. But given Nargis is in prison and doesn't have a line of communication with the people inside the country, and honestly, after what happened over the weekend in the region and the war that broke out in Israel, right now I think it's just very volatile and very hard to know where the movement may go given there is lack of organization still going on. Uh, so I think the emphasis should be right now release of Nargis first and foremost as well as all political prisoners because they're the people who can lead the movement back in, uh, in confronting the government atrocities and repression. What do you think are the prospects of the Iranian authorities releasing Mohammadi given the great accolades she's received internationally and the calls from the United States and others for her to be immediately released? How likely do you think uh, Iran is going to act on those demands? Uh, well, the pressure is definitely building, and it depends on if it will continue. I think the key point is that both governments calling for a release and other actors persevere and not be limited to this moment when the news came out. Uh, the pressure will be building, but it all depends on how much Iranian government feels 
that uh, it has to make a move on releasing her or not. At the moment, I, I think, again, the Gaza-Israel war has diverted attention from domestic affairs in Iran. Of course, it's a major development, but I think it will have major feedback into how the people see their government. And really, the question is people asking, where is this government taking us? What kind of life is ahead of us? And if this war in Israel has any potential to make Iran an actor and uh, there would be any kind of military engagement, people will be very nervous that this government's policy is completely destroying any future hopes for them. Um, so what I'm saying is the regional tensions could be also fanning the flames of discontent in the country if it's the people who start paying the price for their government's policies. Well, Hadi Gaimi, founder and executive director of the Center for Human Rights in Iran, joining us on the line from New York. Thank you very much for speaking to Flashpoint Iran. Thank you for having me. That's it for the show. I'm Michael Lippin. I hope you'll join me next week for another Flashpoint Iran. Flashpoint Iran.